We are continuing our series in the Lord's Supper, or look at the Lord's Supper, and this is the final time. Um, we will consider the Lord's Supper in this context. Um, last time we were together, we looked at wine, specifically, and the great benefits of wine, the dangers of wine, but also what wine points us to. That it wasn't by coincidence that Jesus Christ's first miracle was turning water into wine. Because that is what was promised to those old covenant saints, those those ones who were longing for the Messiah. They were promised new wine. They were promised wine um, where their barrels will be filled to the max, if you want to say it that way. So wine points us to Jesus Christ, not merely just the blood that was shed for us, symbolizing that, but but also this blessing from God that we are the inheritors and the receivers of this wine in abundance that was promised in the Old Testament. You receive that, saints. And that's why today um, we will partake of, at the supper for the first time in Reformation Bible history, wine. Not merely because, again, the reasons of my Pastor Isaiah and Pastor Antonio like wine, therefore we want you to like wine and we're going to have wine. Um, or we believe um, because we have Christian liberty and we can drink alcohol, then let's drink alcohol. But no, we believe that that is what the scripture says. When Christ instituted the supper, he used wine. And throughout church history, we read that the element that was used for the cup was wine. We're going to look a little bit at that. This afternoon, but so what I want to do is we're going to look at the origins of grape juice, uh, not not extensively uh, because there's a long history there. But how did the church come to drink grape juice at the supper? And then we're going to look at the biblical evidence for why wine at the supper. And then I'm going to go through and I think I have like 10 objections to drinking wine at the supper. Um, and we'll we'll try to answer those. Um, those are more so, yes, for myself, but also for you. Be- just in case your family member tells you, do you drink wine or grape juice at the supper? You know, those questions that they may ask you. Um, you have a little bit of an answer to what they might ask. Let's consider, how did the church begin to use grape juice at the Lord's Supper? How do we get from using grape juice? Because from... Essentially, from the time of the Old Testament um, to the formal institution, at least visibly speaking, of the church at Pentecost, and even after, the church used wine. So how do we get to using grape juice? How do we get to using grape juice? Mind you, grape juice is also the prominent element that churches use at the supper. The historical origin of the modern practice, not an ancient practice, the modern practice of substituting grape juice for wine in the supper is not found in scripture. It's not found in the church tradition. But rather, it can be traced to the 19th century temperance movement. Again, the origins. Where do we, where do we locate wine from, or using grape juice rather from? Not church history, not the scriptures, but in the 19th century temperance movement. In the early 1800s, the abuse of alcohol was widespread in America. And to combat this, a movement began. And the teaching behind this movement was anything associated with alcohol was evil. Even if you tasted alcohol, 
You're in sin. So their aim then was to ban all alcohol sales in stores. And they succeeded for a short amount of time. Many Christians began to get behind this movement and started to question whether we should even drink wine at the supper. Enter Thomas Welch. Thomas Welch applied a new pasteurization process to grapes, and the result was unfermented wine, better known as grape juice. Mind you, it was actually two years after, um, I believe, Thomas Welch died, or his son took on, you know, the grape juice and really started to advertise it and incorporated in um, the Methodist church. So if you want to think of, okay, the origins of grape juice is not found in a Reformed church, not found in a Roman Catholic church, it's found in a Methodist church. Churches began to use this newly formed juice as a substitute at the wine of the supper. And also you had, you had many women um, who were coming out and saying, I'm not going to partake of the supper unless you change the grape juice, unless you find an alternative. So you had... You had then, at, during this time, pressure on pastors to change uh, the element of wine to grape juice. So for those who grew up in a tradition like myself that used grape juice at the Lord's Supper, the origins is not found in scripture, not found in church history, but, but the origins of grape juice is found in a 19th century social and political movement. That's where it's found. The temperance movement like every other movement, was unsuccessful. Unsuccessful. <clears throat> How was it unsuccessful? Well, the temperance movement, like every other movement, mislocated sin or mislo misplaced the location of sin. The temperance movement placed a responsibility for sin on some external thing. That is wine. It is wine that causes you to sin. It is alcohol that causes you to sin. Rather than placing... The responsibility on the human heart. The reason why you sin is not because of how much you drink per se. It's because of your heart. That is why you sin. The temperance movement also promoted, uh, uh, um, promoted legalism. Promoted legalism saying you cannot drink this and if you do, you're in sin. And substituted that or rather destroyed Christian liberty. So while destroying Christian liberty, you're upholding legalism and saying that if you take of this wine, this alcohol, then you're going to hell. Also, there were a lot of pithy advertisements during that time, too. Many pastors would come up with these phrases such as, um, no lips touch my this mouth unless it's grape juice or something like that. And women came out with these type of pithy advertisements as well. Um, the Bible, saints, nowhere teaches abstinence from those things that God has given to us as a gift. The Bible does not teach abstinence. The Bible teaches moderation. And you can say that the reason why a lot of, why a lot of young people and also middle-aged people have a problem with drinking is because they grew up in a society where they were saying, where they said, don't drink. But they weren't taught about moderation. They weren't taught about moderation. And that was one of the failures of the temperance movement. You remove something, but in doing so, you don't teach at least 
the, the, the gift that it is to creation and how it can be used properly. Alcohol can be used properly. <clears throat> and we, we consider that, I don't want to go through that rabbit trail again, but we consider that last Sunday afternoon. In fact, one theologian said the only thing the temperance movement succeeded at was permanently removing the biblical sacrament of the Lord's Supper from a large number of Protestant churches in the United States. So if there's anything that the temperance movement did successfully was removing grape juice from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Mind you, wine was used up to this point. There was no other substitute at the supper, at least with respect to the cup, for wine. No one drank grape juice. In fact, even Roman Catholics during the temperance movement and even Eastern Orthodox, they were come out, coming out and saying, that is not biblical. What you are doing, substituting wine for grape juice, is not biblical. See, saints, the reason why I want you to note it, note, take note of this is because many of us have traditions, and unless we question or even ask the origins or if this, this tradition is even biblical, then we will be stuck and be a slave to our tradition. We need to ask, why are we doing what we do? Um, even if you come up with the wrong answer or the right answer. So traditions like grape juice at the supper, traditions like a sinner's prayer, traditions like an altar call, traditions like, you know, the many things that many of you grew up in, and myself included seeing it, we never ask, why are we doing it? We just take it as, this is what the church has always done. But in fact, this is not what the church has always done. The church has not always partook of grape juice, but in fact, the proper element of the supper was wine. What's the biblical witness then to this? Um, I'm just going to give you two verses. Number one, this the first verse that I give you should be a a closed door, put in the lock, you know, type of uh, case, because it's from our Lord's own mouth. Matthew 26, verse 27 to 29, then he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now and on until that day when I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. Now you might ask, where in the world do you see wine at? There is no explicit mention of wine. Well, the term fruit of the vine is a technical term which means simply wine again when you when you read of fruit of the vine it means wine in fact in jewish tradition it tells us that the term fruit of the vine was a term used to describe the wine in sacred rituals so this term fruit of the vine was used as a term that many jewish writers would use to describe wine not merely in a social context in a, in a recreational context, but more so in a sacramental, ritual, sacred context. Meaning, this wine is not merely just for our pleasure. This wine is pointing us to something. It means something. And this is also a point that I want you guys to know, is there's a difference between drinking wine in a social, recreational aspect, context, and there's a difference between drinking wine in a sacramental, sacred context. One theologian ex explains this well. He says, the expression of the fruit of the vine is employed by a savior and the synoptical gospels to denote the elemental element contained in the cup of the Holy Supper. The fruit of the vine is literally the grape, 
But the Jews have used this phrase to designate the wine partaken of on sacred occasions, at the Passover and at the evening of the Sabbath. The Mishnah expressly states that in pronouncing blessings, the fruit of the vine is the consecrated expression. The Christian fathers, as well as the Jewish rabbis, have understood the fruit of the vine to mean wine in a proper sense. Our Lord, in instituting the Lord's Supper, after Passover, availed himself of the expression invariably employed by his countrymen in speaking of the wine and the Passover. In other words, Jesus, when he's saying the fruit of the vine, he's using that because that's what they know of. And mind you, this is the first time they've partaken of the Lord's Supper. He's instituting it. So in instituting it, he wants it to make it known that what we're doing here is sacred. So he uses a term that denotes its sacredness. This is not just another meal. Saints, the Lord's Supper is not just another meal. It's a sacred meal. It's a holy meal. It's a meal where the minister asks God to take these ordinary things and use them for holy use to confer grace to you. First Corinthians 17 through 11, 17 through 21. But the following instructions I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For one eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One hungry, another gets drunk. In the context here, Paul is speaking about a division within the Corinth church, Corinthian church. And what he's saying is, you guys are abusing the Lord's Supper. Now notice, how are they abusing the Lord's Supper? One is eating, and the other is getting drunk. This presupposes that at the supper, they were drinking wine. At the supper, they were drinking wine. How else would they get drunk? They were mis- they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And Paul here is saying, we'll get to this later, you are abusing the supper by treating the supper as an ordinary meal, as a Roman meal. You're eating what you, you're, you're taking, you, you know, all the bread and food that you want, and you're going this way. And you're taking all the wine that you want, and you're going that way. And what's happening? You're getting full, and you're getting drunk. That is not how we treat the sacredness of the supper. So Paul here, um, implicitly, it's implying that what they were drinking at the supper in Corinth was wine. How else would they get drunk? Especially he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Now, saints, that's the biblical data. You hear from our Lord's words, and then you have it practiced also in the early church, which is what we see in Corinth. That's enough, honestly. Um, I'm not really big in giving you ten different proof texts. If there is one proof text that we need and that does the job, specifically the Lord's own words, then it's all we need. I'm going to come now. Let's talk about the objections. Objections. Let's say someone is really adamant on grape juice and they're trying to hold on to grape juice as much and how, as tight as they can. What are some of the objections and things that they might say concerning why they will, will not partake of wine at the supper? Objection number one: the use of alcohol is sin. The use of alcohol is sin. Well, we've already covered this last Sunday afternoon. The Lord, uh, the drinking of alcohol is not a sin. 
the abuse of alcohol. Drunkenness is a sin. Again, saints, just so you guys don't misinterpret me, and I, and I said it last Sunday afternoon as well, drunkenness is a sin. But drinking alcohol is not a sin. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. In fact, saints, this was the major problem with the temperance movement. In desiring to stop the abuse of alcohol, they turned to legalism and their own human inventions over God's word. In fact, St. Paul warns us of such movements. In fact, you can put every single movement and relate it to what Paul's saying in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Notice what he says. He says, see to it that, that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than accordance with Christ. This vain philosophy that the temperance movement came up with. And also, Paul goes on to say, if you have died with Christ through the elementary principles of the world, why, as is if you were living in the world, do you not submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? In accordance with the commandments and teachings of man, these are matters which do not have the appearance of wisdom. If you grew up with a tradition that said, don't chew alcohol or tobacco, don't drink alcohol, don't watch certain, uh, movies, uh, have your hair length at this, women have to wear this, women can't do this. Paul is speaking to those pastors here. Because notice Paul's saying, there's people that are saying, don't touch. There's people that are saying, uh, do not handle, do not taste. And he says that it has the appearance of wisdom. It has the appearance of wisdom. It looks wise, right? Oh, there's rapid um, drunkenness in, in, in America. Wisdom should tell us, let's remove alcohol. That's only the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body, but are no of no value against fleshly indulgence. The second objection, the separation from the world argument. That is, Scripture commands us to be separate from the world and worldliness. The use of alcohol is a worldly activity. Therefore, we should not use wine at the Lord's Supper. This argument is based upon an incorrect premise. As we have said, the use of alcohol is not worldly, but the abuse of alcohol is worldly. In fact, to declare the use of alcohol is worldly, as worldly, then you must declare that Jesus Christ himself was worldly. Again, if you declare or if you have decided within your own heart that the use of alcohol is worldly, then you must declare that Jesus Christ himself was worldly. Because Jesus Christ, if you don't know, drank wine. In fact, it was even stated that in the Passover meal you had to drink at least four cups of wine. He drank wine, he made wine, he gave wine to others to drink. So if we want to say then that alcohol is worldly, then Christ himself is worldly. In fact, we can even say that if drinking alcohol is a sin, then simply put, we're all going to hell. Because Christ drank wine. And we would need a savior for us. Separation from the world does not mean separation from material things. And this is the ancient pagan heresy of Gnosticism, which says that sin and evil are, um, they adhere in external things. And the best thing we have to do is stay away from them. So stay away from the movie theater. Stay away from the malls. Stay away from the makeup. Men, stay away from this or that. 
Sin does not inhere. It's not in things. <clears throat> sin is not in the bottle of alcohol. Uh, sin is not in things. But sin is those things that come from the heart, from an impure heart. This also, saints, this objection, I believe, is connected with those people, and there's many Christians like this, which it's, it's fine to a certain degree. Those Christians who say that, um, what about our public witness? What about what, what, how the world sees us? The world sees us drinking, so how's the world going to view us, right? And in doing so, what you, what you do is you care more about how the world views you than what God has commanded you to do during a worship service. You, you, you care more about your witness to your ungodly and save, and unsafe friends to what God says concerning his word. <clears throat> Let the world think what they want. If God has commanded us to do X, we do X. If God's commanded us to do Y, we do Y. And let the world think what they may. Explain it to them if you can. Separation from the world means separation from sinfulness, not from material things. That is to say, how do you separate yourself from worldliness? Renew your minds. Constantly check your heart. Pray, read, those things. Do not avoid, though, those material things that God's given to us as a gift that are good things for us. Okay, next objection. What if my 15-year-old wants to become a member? He or she has to drink grape juice. What if my 15-year-old, 13-year-old, 12-year-old, 10-year-old wants to become a member? And they genuinely, you know, you believe that they are saved and the elders believe that they are saved or whatever. They can't drink wine at the supper. Well, they can. Minors can drink wine under um, certain uh, contexts, specifically under the Lord's Supper, the context of the Lord's Supper. Uh, chapter 11 in Alcoholic Beverages um, says uh, persons under 21 prohibitions. No person under the age of 21 shall have in or her uh, possession or consume any alcoholic beverage at any place not open to the public except for wine used for the sacramental or other religious purposes during authorized religious services. So if your 15-year-old wants to become a member, just know legally at least they can have wine at the supper. I'm not saying that, I'm not forcing you parents to make them drink wine, but the law says that it's not unlawful. At least from the law's perspective. And I would also say from a, from a parent's perspective, uh, teach them about, this is where you can teach them about abstinence, or rather, uh, moderation, and also teach them about the good gift that God has given to us and what this represents. Not merely just, see the problem is people think about wine, think about what it does for you. But rather, we have to think about wine and what it represents, but also, even today, when you taste, it's gonna taste bitter. When you taste the bitterness of the wine, it should remind you of the bitterness of your sin. It should remind you of how how uneasy and how hard um, 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 Christ and him carrying our, that cross for us was. You see, Satan always wants to make things easier. Grape juice goes down easier, right? 
But wine is bitter. Wine reminds us of the new covenant that was shed and that was inaugurated with blood. And it points to the blood, right? Okay, the First Amendment also speaks to this. Another objection. Fruit of the vine in the Gospels means grape juice, not wine. This is a common one. Fruit of the vine in the Bible means grape juice and not wine. We've already considered what fruit of the vine means, but to those who say fruit of the vine means grape juice are actually doing eisegesis of the text. Eisegesis of the text. What that means is they're importing their own tradition and their human-made inventions upon the text and reading that into the text. Because if you want to say fruit of the vine means grape juice, where are you getting that from? Because fruit of the vine, just taken by itself, can mean watermelon. Or think of any other fruit that grows on a vine. Why would it? Why does it mean grape juice? It can mean any sort of fruit. So to say then that fruit of the vine means grape juice, you're doing eisegesis. You're importing your own tradition into the text. You're not exegeting the text. <clears throat> um, again, fruit of the vine could mean many things. It could mean watermelon. It could mean melons. It could mean many other things. In fact, um, I was speaking to this with Dustin, and Dustin was naming off like literally every single fruit that grows on a vine um, <laughs> that I didn't even know grow on a vine. So, yeah, think of think of all those types of fruits, right? It can mean that. Okay, third, uh, next objection. New wine in the scriptures refers to grape juice. Another common one. New wine means grape juice. The word new wine actually means sweet wine. And some have even said that this new wine is actually more alcoholic because of the higher sugar content. So it gets you more of a nice feeling. In fact, if new wine meant uh, grape juice, then what do you say about Acts chapter 2, verses 13 through 15? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, filled up, uh, lifted up his voice and expressed to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let, uh, let this be known to you, or give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. If new wine meant grape juice, then why would these men be accused of drunkenness? Simply put, if new wine meant grape juice, then why would these men be accused of drunkenness? So it tells us that New wine was something that people knew of in the day. They knew of what new wine was. Um, and they're accusing these men of drunkenness. Next objection. This is the big one. I retain the liberty, or Christian liberty, or liberty of conscience to drink or not to drink. So I choose to not partake of the Lord's Supper whenever it uses wine. <sighs> While we want to uphold the liberty of conscience and the liberty that we have as believers... We must remember that the liberty of conscience only pertains to how one regulates their lives. But your liberty of conscience, whether you want to drink or not to drink, does not pertain to the worship of God. Whatever your conscience tells you, throw it out of your mind when it comes to how we worship God. That is the big problem, and I cannot wait because we had a whole sermon on this in, uh, in, our, in our liturgy and worship series. That there are many people who are doing worship with their own conscience. We do not worship God by our own conscience. We worship God according to his word. So, again, there's a difference between drinking alcohol and an environmental or recreational aspect. In that context, right, if you go to a party, they have alcohol there. You have the liberty to drink or not to drink. And no one can condemn you for it. 
But when you step in the walls of a worship service into a church, and when they are partaking of the Lord's Supper and they're using wine, your liberty of conscience goes out the window. Because God regulates what we do here. Not your conscience. In your private life, do whatever you want. Drink, not drink. Don't get drunk, but drink, not drink. Do whatever you want. But when it comes to the worship of God, when it comes to those sacred things that God has instituted, it is only God and God alone who regulates what we do. Let's say then, our conscience governed which drink we prefer the supper. Imagine all the sorts of drinks that would be here. Imagine your conscience said, like, if we all, if, if we said, you know what, this today we're gonna have orange juice. Imagine someone saying, you know what, my conscience tells me I don't want orange juice, I gotta have, I gotta have Coke. I can't have Coke, you know what, the, uh, the sister over here says I have to have Sprite. It has to be, you know, white soda. You know, clear soda. Oh, you know, you know what, I can't do that. Um, it has to be cranberry juice. You see, you see, if we, if we are left to our liberty of conscience when it comes to worship, we would have a buffet when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And even when it comes to the bread, right? Some might want Sarah Lee, some might want Wonder, some might want, you know, all that. So we don't, again, saints, we don't, we don't go to our liberty of our conscience, right? We have the liberty to, no, you don't have the liberty when it comes to a worship service. And mind you, thank God that we don't have the liberty. I mean, we would be fighting like cats and dogs if we had the liberty of conscience when it comes to a worship service. Objection, another objection. Changing the grape juice to wine will cause division in the church and ultimately bring disunity within the church. Changing the grape juice to wine will cause division in the church and ultimately bring disunity within the church. While we want to uphold the words of 1 Peter 3.1, which says, Seek peace and pursue it. On the other hand, we are commanded in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23, to buy the truth and do not sell it. To buy the truth and do not sell it. James tells us in James chapter 3, verse 17, the wisdom that is from, from above is first pure. First pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and God's fruits. In other words, saints, godly wisdom seeks purity first. Then peace, not peace, and then purity. In fact, sometimes and many times it is the purity that causes non-peace. It is the purity by which you present truth that will cause division, because truth in many ways is to cause division, as well as bind, but it is to cause division. Um, to this day then, uh, a, bib- a truly biblical peace can only be based on biblical truth. Peace is important, saints. Don't get me wrong. Peace is important. But truth is even more important. Peace is important. But truth is more important. Congregation, I hope that you have seen this um, exercise before you by the elders. That as much as we want unity within the church, we have to uphold truth. No matter if we have arguments from here to the moon about whether we should have alcohol at the supper, whether or not there be some members that might leave. You know, saints, this is taking a long time 
for Pastor Antonio and I to come to this conclusion, not merely just us believing it, but more so us presenting it. Because alcohol is a very touchy subject. But again, I am called to preach and to give an account to God and God alone and to give the full counsel of God, meaning there is not a text that I will not preach. There's not a verse that I will not try to exegete and wanting to uphold truth. And saints, I hope that even in this, you've seen that above all, truth matters. Yes, do it, do it peacefully, right? Do it mercifully. But, but don't sugarcoat peace. I mean, truth. Another objection, which is probably the biggest one. Why not offer both grape juice and wine? Why not offer both grape juice and wine? For those who say, I'm just not ready for alcohol. I'm just not there yet. Why not we have, you know, maybe grape, grape juice in the middle and alcohol, you know, outwardly or in the outward portion? There's a few reasons why I don't believe offering both wine and grape juice at supper is helpful. Mind you, saints, me and Pastor Antonio went back and forth on this, too. I mean, if there's anything that was the most plausible argument, it was this one. Let me give you a few reasons why. First and foremost, because it causes more disunity among members than unity. It causes more disunity among members than unity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church... This is also speaking in the context of the Lord's Supper. When you come together as a church, the Lord's Supper then is something we do together. It's a visible representation of our unity, of our togetherness in Christ. But saints, if we offer both wine and the grape juice at the supper, we will be showing disunity, especially when it comes to the one thing that we should be united on, and that is doctrine. We have some that say, I don't believe, at least doctrinally, because if you don't believe it doctrinally, if you don't believe it practically, then you don't believe it doctrinally, because it's clearly said in the word. So we're causing more disunity, disharmony, and having a split cup than unity. And we're doing exactly what the people at Corinth did. You're coming up and you're taking your own meal. You're taking your own drink. <clears throat> Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It's the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ. Notice, saints, Paul refers to the cup in the singular. The singular cup. It's the sharing of one cup. But again, if we offer both grape juice and wine, then are we sharing one cup? No, we will be sharing a split cup. There will be two cups. <clears throat> This question then also has been answered for us in Holy Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read of this problem Paul was having with the Christians who are abusing the Lord's Supper. He says, again, that in verse 19 through 22, that when you come together, do not do your own thing, essentially. Don't get drunk. Don't abuse the supper. Don't treat the supper like it's an ordinary meal. Now, What's Paul's pastoral advice to these Christians at Corinth? You would think, okay, they have, they're drinking wine at the, at the supper. You would think pastorally, he would say, let's remove the wine and substitute it for something. Mind you, in Paul's day, there was a process by which you could get wine close to grape juice, but not quite. 
So there was something there that Paul could have introduced to stop people from abusing the wine and not get drunk. That's what he should have done, right? Remove it. This, in fact, he says this. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What is his pastoral What is his pastoral advice? It's not to remove the alcohol because you're getting drunk, but instead he locates the sin properly. Check your heart. He doesn't remove alcohol. He says, remove the sin in your heart. Remove your individualism. Remove your, your selfishness. Isn't that interesting? So even Paul doesn't, he doesn't, not for one second, who is a master of the Old Testament. He doesn't for one second think that the great uh, uh, solution to this problem in Corinth is just to remove the wine. He says, no. Remove the sin and the filth from your heart. Keep the wine. Because that's what we do. That's what was instituted. Um, okay, a few more and then we're done, saints. I'm afraid, another big one, and I'm afraid that even a small amount of wine in the Lord's Supper will cause me to become a drunkard. Let's just say even someone who's a, who's a recovering alcoholic, Right? You know, and if I drink this, then I'm just going to have flashbacks and I'm just going to make a beeline to, to Target where you got the wine from and I'm going to grab all the bottles I can. As we have already stated, drunkenness is a work of the impure heart, not the sacrament. Drunkenness is a work of an impure heart, impure heart rather, and not the sacrament. For the Lord's Supper is a holy gift from God. The recovering alcoholic can't say that he will fall back into abusing alcohol by partaking of wine at the supper. For we must remember, it was Jesus Christ who instituted the Lord's Supper. And Jesus Christ, who is truly God, truly man, truly God, will not institute something to lead you into sin. That's the basic argument. This is not some just, you know, Joe Schmo. It is Christ. Do you think Christ did not know about drunkenness in his day? In fact, there were some at the, at, at the, waiting, at the wedding when he turned water into wine that were getting drunk. You think he didn't know that abuse of alcohol was a problem? But even in light of that, he instituted the supper with wine. Even, even in light of people may abusing the cup. We must remember, saints, that whatever God commands, it's never lead us to sin. James 1 says perfectly for us, no one is to say that when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Struggling alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, do not say when the wine's there, God is tempting you. He is not. He's actually enabling you to be free. You see, saints, what does this say about the power of the gospel when someone says, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I can't come to the table because of wine? What are you saying about the power of the liberation that Jesus Christ gives to you? That you are no longer under the bondage of 
And this is not even a real thing, but alcoholism. There's no, there's no such thing as alcoholism. What are you saying about the gospel? What are you saying about the spirit within you? What are you saying about this renewed life that you were to have? So if anything, when a, a recovering alcoholic looks at the wine and the cup, he should say, man, thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood for me, for dying for this thing here. <clears throat> last one. Um, no, I think that was the last one. If one who has struggled with, in the past with alcohol comes to the table and drinks the wine, then after goes and gets drunk, it will not be the wine's fault. It will not be because of the sacrament. It will be because of their impure hearts. There are more objections we can go through. Many objections. Um, but I think that will suffice. I hope, saints, that through all this you have seen not merely just the um, willingness of the elders to preach on something, although it may be touchy, even in light of that, it is truth and it is what God has said for us to do. And on a personal note, as your shepherd, I thank God that many of you, I speak on the behalf of Antonio and Pastor Antonio as well, that many of you have been receptive to this new change because this is a change. A very big change. And I praise God that you have seen that it's not merely just my articulation of whatever or the arguments that I present, but this is what God's word says. This is what God's word says. And let's continue. And saints, when you, when you pray for Reformation Bible Church, pray that God will continue to allow us to see God's word in light of our worship. And are, are we lining up? We're always trying to just line up with what God, God's word says, saints. So this afternoon, we have the privilege to partake of the Lord's Supper um, in the way that God has truly commanded us to partake of the Supper. That is to watch before you the bread being broken, the bread torn apart for you, and then also partake of the proper element of the sacrament, which is wine. So saints, let's pray.